Hey y'all, it's me Jade and I'm glad to be talking to you. This week we've got Tampa born and recent Tampa Bay returnee Liz Dederer. Liz is a serial entrepreneur and she's also the founder and CEO of Sales School for Entrepreneurs, which takes up and coming entrepreneurs like I know many of you are and guides them to create successful and sustainable businesses. Liz is further along on her business journey than many of my other guests and I thought that would be really useful because we can all use a bit of guidance sometimes, can't we? All right, I won't talk your ear off. Episode 206 of On The Way is coming up. Transcripts can be found at wgcproductions.com, and an extended version of this interview can be found at our Patreon, which can also be accessed at wgcproductions.com. Oh, and before I go, remember, this is a WGC production. Twenty-year five-time entrepreneur, Liz Dedero, CEO of Selling with Service, empowers women to make money and create change. In her flagship program, The Sales School for Entrepreneurs, Liz teaches solopreneurs how to create a high-touch, low-tech service business so they can experience their first of forever five-figure months. An accomplished speaker, Liz brings wit and wisdom to her frequent appearances on podcasts, regional and national conferences on subjects of women's empowerment, sales, and money. How are you doing today, Liz? I am doing fabulous. I'm loving this weather in Florida here. Very it's an absolutely happy. beautiful day. And I didn't know it'd be this way. We had an awful thunderstorm last night. But I just want to hop right into the first question that I ask everybody. So this season's all about Tampa. So in some ways, we, know, we kind of know where you're from. But I do want to know, where are your roots? So this is a really interesting question and a really interesting... <laughs> I actually feel rooted in Tampa. And I will tell you why. I'm technically a native Floridian. I was born in Tampa and I've spent the majority of my life in Connecticut. COVID brought me back down to Florida. I'm actually in Daytona right now. Yeah. So I'm a Northeasterner, which you can tell I'm always wearing black and I swear a lot <laughs> and, you know, move 150 miles an hour. So, you know, no denying I'm from the Northeast. But it's funny, I have felt this really strong, energetic pull towards. Florida for a number of years, and specifically the Tampa area. So it's really funny how life is kind of coming full circle. Mm -hmm. And how do you like being back in Tampa? And how is it serving your business uh, since you've been back? Yeah, I'm loving the area. Like I said, I'm in Daytona right now. Um, COVID brought us down here, but I will be relocating again to the Tampa area, most likely before the end of the year. I'm now the president of NABO in the Tampa area, the National Association of Women Business Congratulations. Owners. Thank you. It's a phenomenal organization I've been part of for a number of years. And one thing led to another. Once I came back down to Florida last year, got connected with the group over there and they were like, all right, I got the short straw. I'm president now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great because it is really giving me that kind of clout, if you will, to be able to network a lot easier at the higher levels. And I went to my first networking meeting when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the biggest gifts that I could have received early in my career to see the power of women who care about other women, supporting other women, and what that's done for me growing into an entrepreneur. Okay. Interesting. And could you just sort of explain to us what it is exactly that you do and how you came to be doing that? Cool. Uh, so what I do is I help women 
who have service businesses, coaches, consultants. I have some bookkeepers, uh, lawyers. I help them really build out the business model and ultimately grow to their first 120,000. We call that the entrepreneurial minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So we create a sustainable business model to get them to that first earning marker in the sales school for entrepreneurs. Got a whole program around it, whole slew of incredible women coming through, just really doing some earth-shaking stuff. Like we make money so that we can create change. And how I came into this is a pretty crazy story, but the short version is I allowed myself to evolve over time. I resisted it, kind of kicking and screaming at times, but (laughs) I evolved. (laughs) It's been an iterative process. So that's really interesting. And I want to go to uh, Selling with Service real quick because it says that your purpose is to... um, it says that your purpose is to empower women and speak to their value and let them speak their own value and speak their own worth. So I just want to know, how exactly do you go about encouraging that can-do spirit that you have in your own self? How do you go about encouraging that in other women? So a lot of it is modeling it. I'm very unapologetic in so much of what I do. I'm very bold in the social activism lane. I'm, you know, know me for two seconds and you know quickly which side of the coin I'm on. Very, very, very outspoken and you know, how I encourage other women to speak their value and own their worth is by modeling an extreme example of it. And also what gets scripted gets said. And one of the main reasons why women don't speak up is A, we haven't heard or seen it done. So B, we don't know what to do ourselves. So, so much of what I do in sales school is empowering women with the words to be able to say the things. Mm -hmm. Like I'm clueless when it comes to dating, right? I've been a single mom for 10 years for a reason. This is not (laughs) very clear. I teach business and I do not give tax legal relationship advice. Like it's a no-go zone for me, but I have a relationship coach. And whenever I get crazy and start to do the dating thing, I pull right back on her and I'm like, what do I say in this situation? What are the words? And she talks me off a ledge, right? Because I'm a totally normal sane person, right? So (laughs) it's not my fault. I'm a woman. So (laughs) when it comes to empowering women in business conversations, in financial conversations, like that's a thousand percent my lane. I do for my clients what like my relationship coach does for me. So I'm that kind of like girlfriend on demand when they're like, oh my God, I'm in this you know, situation. What do I say? How do I get myself out of this? The only reason why we don't speak up is because we've never seen it done or we don't know what to say. And I don't want to, I don't want to ask you to give away all your industry secrets, but just like a little tidbit, a little sneak peek or taste, what exactly is it that you tell these women to say for our listeners out there? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many things. I mean, oh, I could never give away all the secrets. I've got (laughs) hundreds of hours of content in the sales school and I'm always adding more to it because it's just such an evolutionary process. But, you know, some of the things like I, I like to give little like snippets and formulas just to make it easier in our brain. Um, Like one of the things I say is in a sales conversation, you know, a lot of people think that like a sales conversation is 50-50, who's talking, who's listening, or 60-40 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have a totally different framework for that. It's 80-15-5. of the other of the conversation is the other person talking, aka you listening. 
15% of the conversation is you asking questions. If it doesn't come out in the form of a question, if Alex Trebek would not allow it on Jeopardy, it doesn't leave your mouth, period. There's a few kind of, you know, caveats to that. I call them sentence expanders. And these are little pocket phrases you want to keep with you at all times, which are, they're not technically questions, but help me understand that better. Tell me more about that. That's really interesting. Keep going. Those sort of things. The whole goal is to keep the other person talking. Remember the 80-15. The five Mm -hmm. is where I say permission to speak freely is granted. Only 5% of any given conversation is the other person is, is when you should be speaking in full sentences. One of the things it's all these early kind of conditionings that we have societally with women, you know, children should be seen and not heard. That's got to go. Women need to, you know, people pleasers and nurturers and, and don't interrupt and don't ask a, a question, you know, don't follow up a question with a question. That's rude. Don't ask them that that's rude. That's bullshit period. So I break down a lot of those barriers um, with with pattern disruptive techniques for how to navigate conversations that you ask a question to follow up with a question because you need to gain better clarity and understanding, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay to ask the same question twice in a conversation, either in a row or differently, totally fine to do. People don't answer the questions that you ask them, right? This very rarely happens. So it's okay to to say the same thing. It's okay to ask a bold question or, you know, the person in the power is the one who's listening. Conversation is like a driver's ed car. The person who has the steering wheel thinks that they're in charge, but the person who's really in charge is the driver's ed instruction instructor who's got that extra brake pedal. Mm. And that's you in the control. So you always want the other person to think they're in control because they're the ones doing the talking. But guess what? You're in control right now because it's your show and you're asking the questions. You could take a left turn real quick and I've got to go with your flow. Yeah, I was thinking while you were talking, I was thinking this does sound a lot like podcast interviewing with the 80, 5. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's very interesting to use a pocket expander. I believe that's what you called them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, expanders. Just keep them talking. Keep them talking because that's where you're going to get gold. And I know, like with women in business specifically, one of the hardest things that that I have to help them with—not have to, but get get the honor of, of working with them on—is how do they um, effectively introduce themselves? And one of the ways I break that down so that they're not trying to boil the ocean and say their entire career into a 30-second elevator pitch, Mm -hmm. which that's a whole other TED Talk. But (laughs) one of the ways that I get them to look at that differently is by pointing out, you only ever have to be relevant to the person in front of you. You only ever have to make sense to the person you're talking to. And if you don't know how to make sense to the person you're talking to, then you're talking too much and you need to ask more questions to understand how to say things in a way that's going to make sense to them. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, Here's a question that I had. So you said earlier that you were very into sort of, I don't believe you, I don't believe you use this phrasing, but like sort of social progressivism and just trying to equality, just like in general. Yep. And so when I was reading through uh, your website and your resume and so on and so forth, and I saw you focusing on women empowerment, I wanted to know specifically since the gender pay cap isn't just affected by, by sex, but also by race and age, like, for instance, the um, American Association of University Women put out a study and it said, like, the average black and indigenous woman earns about 60% compared to, like, the average white man's pay. And, like, 
Latino women earn 55%, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly, correctly. I just want to know like how your program uh, seeks to address these systemic issues that pop up in these women entrepreneurs' lives and how, and how it helps in that way. I love it. I love that you went right there. So my keynote that I developed last year that I got to deliver once live before COVID <laughs> is called, Excuse Me, Ma'am, Your Wage Gap is Showing. And I say all the things in that. I was fresh out of fucks to give at the time in my life when I created that, thankfully. So I do talk about, um, yes, the conversation is women's wage gap, but exactly to your point, we cannot talk about that with addressing the race wage gap and how that is such a systemic issue. Even the the common stat that's out there of, you know, women earn 82 cents on the dollar to men is a racist conversation in nature. That's white women earning 82 cents on the dollar compared to white men. And even if you go throw in the race stats for men, there's a huge disparity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's across the board and it's a conversation that needs to be had for sure. So I love that you went there. How my program addresses that is, again, just teaching women how to be unapologetic as fucking conversations. You know, it's it's empowering them to, to have these strong conversations And when it comes to the race part of the equation, I take the burden on that it's a white woman's issue to fix, right? Mm -hmm. We are part of the problem. And the way that I tackle that in, excuse me, ma'am, your wage gap is showing is by saying that if we are constantly looking up, saying I've got to close my wage gap from 82 cents to a dollar, right? That I've got to close mine. I'm neglecting all those other women who aren't making as much as me. And we know for a fact that women are better advocates for other women than we are for ourselves. So one of the ways that we can start to work really aggressively on closing the wage gap unapologetically is by white women bringing their counterparts to the table and saying, why is she not making as much as me? Why don't we start there? And being the ally and being the advocate and broaching the hard conversation. That's where I think a lot of the conversation needs to start is with white women going out there and being the advocate for the women of color who are not making as much as we are, because that's just bullshit. Mm. I appreciate your thoughtful answer. And that also brings up uh, another question that I just, I've personally been thinking about and like just considering and things. So in general, like a conversation that society as a, as a whole has really been having is, is the way that we're expressing power now the right way to express power? And this comes up oftentimes like in corporate situations where like uh, to use uh, a popular term, like girl boss sort of rhetoric in the sense that like putting women in power so they can replicate the sort of power they've seen men use in power, which isn't necessarily how one should be using power and et cetera. It's sort of like what you've been saying with oh, um, you can only do what you've seen, which is why so many women don't know how to advocate for themselves because they've never seen someone advocate the way that they are advocating. So I just want to hear kind of your thoughts on what type of power should women be establishing for themselves? Should it resemble the power that men currently use now? Like, what does that sort of look like to you? Because I'm just curious. I want to hear your opinion. Yeah, this it's crazy. I love these questions because this is all the things that I cover and excuse me, ma'am, your wage gap is showing, uh-huh. which again, I only got to deliver it live once. So I'm so bummed about that. I've done it a few times recorded since, but it's like, I knew I was on the right track with this. <laughs> you are. It's so, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I, 
how to express power. And I love the way you phrase that question. It's really a balance of the feminine and masculine energies, right? I'm going to get a little woo woo here. Yeah. So, so it wasn't until 1974 or five that a married woman was able to get a bank account in her own name without her husband's signature. Prior to that, if a married woman wanted to have her own money, she needed a man's, her husband's signature. So hence divorce rates <laughs> went on the rise after that. And then in 1988, this is how NABO was founded and why I'm so, uh, I've been so attracted to the organization and I'm so proud and honored to be the president of NABO Lakeland Tampa is because it was in 1988 that the founder of NABO got the legislation moved forward so that a woman who owns her own business can get a loan from a bank without a man's signature. 1988. Mm -hmm. Like crazy stuff. So we finally get access to money and we enter the workforce in droves in the 80s and we're entering a man's world. So we come in with masculine energy to compete. Big shoulder pads, you know, Working all of girl. that. Yeah. Yeah. The really attractive looks that we had, right? Mm -hmm. Blue eye shadow. I'm going to stand out. Big hair so that we could seem bigger and take up more space. Like I'm sure there was a huge psychological reason why all of these trends were happening. So we come in with this masculine energy and it works to an you know, to some degree, but it's not sustainable because we're feminine. So then the pendulum shifts to the other side. And when we start to step into our feminine energy, there's this confusing Disney princess, you know, dialogue that starts to happen that feminine is dainty or weak or whatever. So us alphas, especially, we don't want anything to do with that. So we double back down on the masculine energy, upper body, chest pounding, that's not where we operate from. Feminine energy is actually the root of life. It's our sacral chakra. It's actually the same chakra. Sex and money are the same chakra. So it's, it's like weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. You've got that lower body grounding energy in the sacral chakra in the hip zone so that you're really rooted and grounded. That is feminine strength. That is feminine power. Owning that strength and femininity and saying things with strength and unapologetic boundaries. And this is where my phrasing of speak your value, own your worth comes in because a lot of language in the entrepreneurial space is to charge your worth and charge in and of itself is a very masculine word. Mm -hmm. And we're not charging our worth because we don't believe that we're worthy and we don't charge what we're worth because we, we don't believe that we're worthy and we don't charge because that's masculine energy. So how we express our power is by recognizing that feminine energy is the strength. It is the root of power. It is the birthplace of all life and that we're actually better. Huh. All right. I'm going to ponder that in my brain. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one talk that we've been talking about just sort of bringing up points from is, excuse me, ma'am, your wage gap is showing. But I also wanted to talk about another talk that you do called the Invis Invisible Business Model. And mm -hmm. the Invisible Business Model is interesting to me because like its tagline is how coaches and service entrepreneurs create the first of forever five-figure months. And you know, as someone who owns a business, that was a very enticing title to me. So could you explain what exactly the Invisible Business Model is, uh, how you developed it, and just uh, expound upon that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is like we've planned this whole conversation because it's a perfect segue from what we were just talking about. Uh-huh. So it's like, <laughs> this is such a divinely guided conversation. I'm loving it. So it's on the heels of what we were just talking about with that masculine feminine energy. It's um, what I noticed over the past decade of working with women in business is that there is this constant struggle between the masculine and feminine energy. We have to show up in masculine alpha energy to get things done right? That's where that happens from. And then the feminine energy is that flowy, that creative. That's when we're kind of in our zone where we're doing the thing where I'm helping and teaching and coaching and speaking like this. And that's the feminine energy. And then there's these masculine containers that have to happen. Like what's the financial goal, the metrics of the business, but so unsexy and so boring that like <laughs> we don't want to play there. Mm-hmm. So what I found over time is that not only is it unsexy and we don't want to play there, they, we just, and I say we, um, in all encompassing, we just avoid it. So what happens is if we think about like Dixie cups and water on a table, if you're just pouring water with no focus, some might get in the cups, but the rest of it's just going to go all over the surface. Mm -hmm. And if it's on the surface, it's just going to make a mess and there's no container. There's no, there's no power to it. It's just sitting there. That's feminine energy without a masculine container. So the invisible business model is designed so that I give you basically the closest thing to a business in a box, the closest thing to a franchise type business for a service-based business. It's done for you so that within these containers, these Dixie cup containers, you can just flow and fill it and do your feminine thing within. This is where I talk about the entrepreneurial minimum wage of 120,000. So many women were saying when, you know, when I would ask them, what do you want your, your, what's your goal, your financial goal for your first year, your first two years in business? I mean, the numbers were all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly having question uh, conversations to educate women as to why their goal isn't big enough or why their goal of six figures is not a number. Mm-hmm. Six figures is not a number. You cannot type that into your calculator and divide by 12. <laughs> um, so I had, to, I was consistently having these conversations. And then finally I broke it down and I was like, listen, here's the thing for a service-based business with low minimal overhead, generally speaking, 120,000 is the entrepreneurial minimum wage. It's the goal from that. Again, I don't give tax advice or anything, but from 120,000, you can have what I call the three bucket principle. One bucket is for your income. You can have a pretty good income on 120,000 revenue. Another bucket is for your operational expenses. You didn't create a business to go broke. You created a business so the business can pay for things and you can have money, right? So mm-hmm. the second business bucket is your business expenses. And that's where the taxes come out of all the, you know, the subscriptions we have to pay for everything is $5.99 or $10.99 or whatever a month. All of those things, not your pocket, the business. And then the third bucket is profitability because there are times we're in between clients because we want to grow a profitable business so we can continue to invest in things. And oh, by the way, just have money, right? So 120,000 gives you a really good foundation for those three buckets foundationally. And that's why I call it the entrepreneurial minimum wage. Now from that, so I don't want to have the discussions around what do you want your first year goal to be? We're going to get you there period. That's the first year goal. That's part of the invisible business model. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell you what it is. Then we can reverse engineer, divide 120 by 12. It's really nice math at $10,000. Like really good. I can work with simple math like that. So now we have a monthly goal that we need to achieve. I help service entrepreneurs create their introductory 
um, package for how they work with their clients. And generally speaking, it's three months. And generally speaking, the goal where they need to charge for that high level service that they're providing is $5,000. So generally speaking, we're looking at help teaching an entrepreneur how to get two clients a month. That's your invisible business model. And then we continue to reverse engineer the metrics. Okay, if that's the goal is to have two clients a month, how many sales conversations do you have? What do you need to do before that? How many conversations and actions do you need to have? Blah, blah, blah. That's the invisible business model. We break it down into math, into that masculine container, takes all of the guesswork out of it. So now all that you need to do is focus on what are you doing within each of those functions? Again, this goes back to what we were earlier uh, talking about earlier, where women don't say the things because they don't know what to say or they haven't seen it said before. Mm-hmm. Now, with the masculine container in place, that invisible business model, now we can start working on the conversation skills, the scripts, you know, framework, whatever word works for you, the things to say within each step. That's it. I just want to take all the guesswork out of it. If business is hard enough, life is hard enough. Like, here's your blueprint. And in the context of like your own personal, uh, your own personal business with selling, with selling with service in the sales school, I wanted to know how you specifically, uh, when you decided that it was time to expand out beyond just you and secure a team. I don't know how many people you have on your team, but I do know there's at least one because Melissa is the one who emailed me. So, yes. <laughs> how did you? determined that it was time to expand outside of just yourself and bring other people into the operation. And what was that like? Yeah. So like I said, in the beginning, you know, the the whole 20 year entrepreneurial journey has been one of just continued refinement and and shifting and changing and, and all of these sort of things. So the business that got me out of corporate was actually a web design and marketing agency. Mm-hmm. That was the business I started when I was working full time, when I was pregnant, when I was at home in an abusive situation and all of these other you know, chaotic things were going on in my life. I was learning that he's an alcoholic and I can fix it. And it was a lot going on at once, but the business was the web design and marketing agency. And that's what got me out. So I started with some other people. I had a franchise type company that did the most of the web support And then I also started to bring on other consultants who could work on different platforms like Drupal or Joomla or any of those really complex ones I just did not want to touch. I had other consultants come in to do that. So I had started out of the gate working with other people in that agency model. Over time, my business started to shift. Websites kind of went in a different direction. The DIY sites were coming, you know, to the forefront. I didn't want to keep up with that. Um, social was, was really changing where it was becoming more nuanced. It wasn't just about posting on your page all the time. I I didn't want to keep up with that. And my clients really wanted my strategy. They wanted to know how I was getting booked on speaking, Mm -hmm. the different sides of my brain that didn't come with the overhead of an agency model. So I started to naturally kind of transition and then really through that really awkward, like two, three years of the growing pains 
Disney princess version, but it was horrendous behind the scenes of like figuring out what my brand was, etc. Once I started to kind of find my rhythm, just like I was talking about, like I helped the early stage entrepreneurs through this. I've been there. I've done the things, learn from my mistakes. So you can just go make your own. <laughs> um, but I've done all the things wrong and right. And when I finally started recognizing that I am kind of in the sales trainee space, my clients actually named my company. I had a two-day seminar that I called Speak Your Value, Own Your Worth. But on social, everyone was saying that they were at the Selling with Service seminar. So I was like, all right, I guess you are. Yeah. Sounds like a cool name. So I had to name the company something. So I was like, all right, it's Selling with Service. Cool. Hashtag that was easy. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yay, teamwork. So Selling with Service was born. And then now I was like, all right, now I was known as like the salesperson and helping people with their businesses through the lens of sales and started to find my rhythm. And that's when the five points to profit was born and the 8015.5 was born. And all of these things that I started to kind of say on repeat, started recognizing that the people were going through the same process. And then I just got curious one day you know, just like I teach people to do now. What if I put Jane and Sally in a conversation together? Could I help them both at the same time? Love having clients that trust you and you can guinea pig with. Like, it's the best. And I would say to them, like, I got an idea. You guys want to play? And they were like, sure, whatever, Liz. And I would put them in a mastermind together and we'd get some shit done and it was great, right? We keep things moving forward. So really, really organically. And then over time, things started to kind of grow. And I tried different products and programs and stuff like that over time, but they were always done from the ego energy of like, I should get a program out there. Mm -hmm. Total wrong energy. What really shifted the tide for me was really the custody stuff started to end. This is, I mean, people don't talk about the personal stuff that goes on, but like I'm on the forefront about this because it can be all consuming. Mm -hmm. The custody stuff started to end when she was six or seven. It got a little worse before it ended, but it started to kind of dissipate when she was about six or seven. She's uh, nine now. Oh, so this is, you know, it's all still, you know, fairly new. Yeah, it's um, recent. Yeah. yeah. So around that time, I was able to breathe a little bit easier. I didn't need to just take on clients that could understand if I had to go to court on a whim or if there was a police situation or something like that. Like I had to play slow and low for a while because I had such chaos going on in the background. Mm-hmm. When things started to calm down is when I started to realize, okay, I've got things going on. My people are getting results. I can breathe now. I'm not crying and shaking every day. Maybe I can bring someone in to like help me with some of the things. So I started to bring on, I had an executive assistant for about a year or so. She was amazing. And all of a sudden, overnight, my productivity doubled because I had another full functioning adult in my business that could do like things. <laughs> uh-huh. It was, you know, it was just insane. Like having that kind of support. So I was like, this is really great. So after that, then I was like, I'm never doing this on my own again. So fast forward, come down to Florida. I really brace for impact with COVID. Before that, I had started kind of programmatizing sales school, started recognizing, again, I'm saying the same things all the time. Um, The way that sales school was actually born was a Facebook post out of frustration. I was trying, trying, trying to put a program together. Nothing was was really sticking. So I was like, you know what? Done is better than perfect. I always guinea pig things. Like, let me just Nike style this. So I put a post on Facebook and I've got like 5,000 people. And I and a great reputation and I've been a national speaker and all this other stuff. So I'm not just like, you know, the Sally's been sitting at home this whole time. Mm-hmm. So 
I put a post on Facebook that says, you know, hey guys, I'm thinking about doing a six week sales school pilot. Who wants in? I posted it and I got frustrated and I closed my laptop and I went to pick my daughter up from aftercare. We went to the park or whatever. Didn't think about it again. Mm -hmm. Later in the day, I get back onto Facebook and I've got like 30 people that were like, yes, me. I was like, all right. So (laughs) we fly it. That was my first beta round of sales school was a six week program that I delivered live. They loved it. It was really fun for me. I enjoyed teaching versus coaching and they got significant value and I didn't have to mama bear them. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I ran it again because I had demand too. And it was cool. And I was ironing out the content and I was over delivering here and I didn't need to say that. And then I ran it again the third time live. And I was like, I think I can start to really modulize this. And then I started to create it over the course of 2019, really creating it as an enrollment program. COVID comes, I come down here, I brace for impact, really give myself pause to figure out what do I want to do, et cetera. And that's when I really recognized I've had a very expensive job for a number of years and I've had, you know, team and payroll and stuff, but really I've had an expensive job. I'm never going to grow this into the company that I know it has potential to be if I don't let go to grow. And that became really crystal clear to me over, you know, the 2020 vision that COVID blessed us with. And that's when I hired Melissa. And that's when I hired my copywriter. And that's when we hired a researcher. And that's when I just started growing the team. I have an executive coach that I work with to work with my leadership skills. I, you know, I'm putting in the work on myself. I joined Navo to work on my leadership skills. Like, it's an evolutionary process, but the decision was made that I'm not going to do this solo anymore. I need a team. And with that, I'm going to need to confront a lot of stuff within myself mm-hmm. and I'm going to need support to do that. So it wasn't just about, do I have the bandwidth to hire, you know, an assistant right now or, you know, operations manager, do I have the financial bandwidth for that? It was, am I prepared to grow this to seven figures within the next 12 months? Am I ready to take on all that that is going to put me through? And the answer was a resounding hell yeah. I mean, like that entire story, one thing that really stood out to me was the fact that it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't something that just happened. It was a, it was slow and low. It it took time to build and develop and create a program that could sustain itself and, and get these numbers and help these people. It took real perseverance to get to that place. And I was, it just sort of stood out to me because so often, like in today's environment, what's prioritized is like the quick boom and bust mentality of you blow up, you go viral, you sell a bunch of stuff and it just sort of peters out. So for you, the people that you help in sales school, like how do you encourage and foster long-term sort of business thinking rather than the short-term gains that are so often prioritized in the day-to-day life? Yeah, great question. So it really is about managing expectations from the onset. And this is where also over the past year, my marketing message, I hired, again, more investments. I hired a marketing agency to really help refine. Uh, I I ran a marketing agency. I, I do my own website. I 99% of my copy has been written by me. Everything has been done by me. Mm-hmm. And then we reach a point we can't see it anymore. So I hired a marketing agency to really help refine and, and help me to look at my business differently and position it differently because it, it is a function of managing expectations from the onset. I am very clear. 
that if you want to grow a business to scale to seven figures by next Tuesday, keep it moving. You're in the wrong place. If you really want to do good work with other humans in your business and you want to have a boutique business where you get to help other people like rolling up your sleeves as a coach, as a service provider, a marketer, whatever. If you want a low tech, high touch business and you want to reach 120,000 as a revenue goal, you're in the right place. And could you just sort of expand on what exactly is a low tech, high touch business? Yeah. So again, coming from that marketing world, like I, and I geek out in the tech lane, <laughs> you know, hence the, the websites and all that other stuff and the marketing metrics and whatever, but I can do all of these things in my business. I am blessed with the, and cursed with the ability to do my own website, to write my own copy, to do my own graphics, to do all the things, to set up the calendar so that it connects to the things so that it auto populates the this and then connects to the mailing and blah, you know, I can do all of that. 97% of women who are starting businesses don't know how, don't care to know how, and think that they need to know how, and they don't. So a low-tech business means you're not going to invest in a Confusionsoft platform for $500 a month. You don't need that. You don't need to have all of the expensive you know, $300 a month Kajabis or the Teachables or the whatever platforms are. You don't need all of that tech to have a sustainable, a high touch business. A high touch means that you're working with your people. Mm -hmm. It means that you're touching them. You're having conversations. You, they can text you if that's a thing for you, you know, that you're accessible because you're affecting people on a very real human level. You don't need a million dollars in technology to do that. That's a low tech business. Not a no tech, because we need Zoom, we need Calendly, we need, you know, all the things, right, to mm -hmm. a degree. It's just low tech. Low tech. People focused. Low tech. Yeah, connection yes. focused. Yes. Before, before we get to our last, last question, I just want to ask you to shout out any sort of businesses or business owners uh, that you think are especially spectacular. So, like, do you have anybody that you'd like to recommend or shout out at this moment in time? Ah, oh, just one, just one. Oh my God. Where you can do start? more than one. Be generous. Yeah. One that comes to mind is uh, the company name is Zenplicity. Uh, Jamie DeBose is the owner and she's San Diego based, but she is a lot of the reason why sales school was born. She runs a marketing agency on the technical side. She's big into metrics and she's got a great brain to be able to untangle all the creative that I had bouncing around in there, I hired her for a strategy session to figure out like, how do I get this ball of, of, you know, ideas out of my head. And that was part of the sales school process that I didn't talk about before. Cause there was, you know, so many thousands of pieces, mm -hmm. but one was I hired Jamie for a strategy day and, um, she asked all the right questions to untangle the thoughts in my brain and help me create a baseline of a framework for what sales school could be. And that gave me um, the, the confidence, courage, and um, really like I could start to see something formulating that was bigger than myself. Uh, and it was because of her. And then she took it to the implementation stage because that's where I like to go to is like, okay, this is cool that we built out the sticky note thing, but like, what is it actually going to look like in the tech space? And we were mm -hmm. able to jump into that conversation. So 
she's uh, been a huge asset. There's so many other, uh, so many other women. I have a ton of business women in my Facebook group, the 120K Club, um, the 120K Club for Women Entrepreneurs. Um, and we actually have an introduction thread where I let everyone just, you know, let, but hold space <laughs> for them to go through and just brag, like introduce yourself. And there's so much networking that goes on in that. So, ah, yeah. Jamie's the only one that comes to mind right now to, to keep it simple. Hmm. Well, thank you. And I'm hopefully many of our listeners will do what I'm going to do and look her up after this interview ends. Um, so we're at the end, we're at the end of the interview. We're at our last question. Liz, you're really, you're really doing it. You're really developing out a, a wonderful idea, investing in women in your community and beyond, helping them make the world a more equitable and beautiful place in that way. So I want to know, how will you know when you've made it? Oh, I'm never going to make it. Okay. There's no, yeah, there's no then. Um, now is the point of destination. This is really, this great question. I've been really like battling with this in my brain for the past like three weeks or so. Mm. It's it's a it's a teetering point. Um, I've made it, and I'm never going to make it. And I say that because if I don't acknowledge that where I am is once where I only dreamed of, I will never be able to fully move beyond where I am. But I'm never going to make it because at every new stair step, I can see a little bit further beyond. So Mel Robbins talks about this in a video she just did a couple days ago, actually. She says that, and, and this is a concept I've heard before, but the dream is not there for us to achieve. The dream is there to get us moving in the right direction so that we can meet the goals along the way and the universe can step in and support us along the way. So there's never going to be a there. Mm -hmm. I'm always, that, that's death. I'm always going to see the next and want to strive for it, but without the recognition that I am there, that where I am is once where I've always wanted to be, I will never get to where I'm going next. That's very profound. That's got me thinking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So could you tell the people where they can find you and your services? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So the Facebook group, uh, I have the shortcut domain. It's 120k.club. It'll take you right to the 120k club for women entrepreneurs. You don't have to be a woman entrepreneur to join the club. If you're new, you know, mention that you found me here and we'll definitely welcome you in so that you can start your networking early. We would love to support you. So that's one place. And then I think the other place is LinkedIn, you know, connect with me on there. That would be the next best place. And that ha obviously has all my contact info on it, but I've, been working LinkedIn since it first came on the block. So I've got a ton of contacts. And if you connect with me, you're then now connected to my entire network. And you have just finished listening to episode 206 of On Their Way. On Their Way was created, hosted, and edited by me, Jade Madison Scott. The theme was composed by Baggio Alvarado, and the logo was created by Amaka Corey. If you got to the end of the interview and thought, man, it's over already, then you are in luck. Because even though this episode is over, there is an extended episode on our Patreon that you can tune into. Well, how do I do that, you might ask? Let me tell you, I reply. <laughs> Head on over to our website, wgcproductions.com. Click on Patreon in the toolbar and then subscribe to the $3 tier or above. You'll help us continue to make shows and we'll help you with your podcast itch. Win-win. You can also support us by following us on Twitter or Instagram at WithGoodCo. And always feel free to tell your friends about the show. All right, I've exhausted my talking points. I appreciate you. And remember to take care of yourselves and each other.